I'd like to call attention to this uh, handout in your bulletin. Um, you can find this information here or online, either one. And online is updated more frequently, so you might want to get used to checking online. This is kind of a list of, for the winter and spring, what's going on here at DCC and all the different ways you can connect. And I would encourage you to do that, to connect. Uh, I would like to point out one thing on here. It's a mistake. I own it. Under the small groups, Nancy and I are starting another group on a Sunday. Uh, it says Sunday evening, but then underneath it, it says two Mondays a month. I'll let you figure it out. So no, I'll just... Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's actually Monday night, not uh, Sunday night. Uh, but look on here and find some way to connect. And uh, go to the website if you want. I'll call the office. Go to the website and click on that and fill out your name. And whoever's in charge of that ministry will call you and follow up with you. Well, as Mark said, we are starting a series today on faith. And um, today we actually want to explore the relationship between faith and rationalism. And how do they relate or how are they opposed? Um, this is very important because in our culture, we are constantly being attacked, aren't we, on what we believe. Uh, I suspect if I were to have quiet, private conversations around coffee with you, many of you would, would agree that it's hard to be a Christian in today's world. You feel attacked, some of you feel shamed, some of you feel mocked. And so we really want to take some time and explore that and take a look at how our culture is developing in light of faith and what are we to do about it. But first, I want you to see a 60-second video. So when people ask me if a god created the universe, I tell them that the question itself makes no sense. Time didn't exist before the Big Bang. So there is no time for God to make the universe in. It's like asking for directions to the edge of the Earth. The Earth is a sphere. It doesn't have an edge. So looking for it is a futile exercise. We are each free to believe what we want. And it's my view that the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created the universe, and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization. There is probably no heaven, and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe. And for that, I am extremely grateful. Professor uh, Stephen Hawking, I know many of you recognize him, um, without question one of the most brilliant men in our time, enrolled in a PhD program at the age of 21 in astrophysics, um, found out that he had ALS, and um, he's now 68, he's had it all these years. Brilliant man, just a brilliant man, and yet he has come to the conclusion that there is no need for God, nor there is an afterlife. And yet Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. I guess if you start with the assumption there is no God, then maybe faith is not required. We would like to take some time and explore these issues and to look at them. But first, a question. Did you uh, check your brain at the door when you came in? 
If you leave your brains in out there, you heard Mark joking. For those of you who are here, we should check our brains over here in the small chapel. As Christians, do we, um, <clears throat> do we leave our intellect out of this? What's the relationship between rationalism, intellectualism, if you will, how to think, and faith? They seem to be at odds with one another. We are constantly being told that those who are educated do not need faith. Isn't that part of our culture? You hear it everywhere you go. The media, education, uh, when you read, all of that. Smart person doesn't really have to have faith. I don't mean this arrogantly, but I've used this many times talking to non-believers. I have five degrees. I'm not stupid. I believe. I believe. No doubt in my mind. None whatsoever. I believe. And yet, many of us live our lives as if we really don't believe. We are what one scholar called it, professing theist, but practicing atheist. We say we believe, but we don't, we don't know how to navigate the world in such a way that our faith really does win out. So our faith really is predominant and strong. We're timid. We're shy. Maybe we're embarrassed. Maybe we're a little not sure of what our faith is. And so there's a little quiet place called church where we can say we believe, but then there's this vast room called culture where we struggle to, to be overt about that and to tell people about our faith. Let me give you a small exercise. If you can see the window, just look out the window for a moment. Let's illustrate this difference between uh, professing Theists, we believe in God and living it out daily. What do you see when you look out the window? What do you see? You tell me. What's that? It's gray? It is. What else? Beauty? Nature? What's that? Summit County? How many of you see mountains? See buildings, people, cars, trees? We could go on and on and list them all, right? Okay, let's pause for just a moment and think like a theologian. Think like a theologian. When we look out the window, when we see snow, are we, do we recall to mind the prophets telling us that, that that is a blessing from the Lord on both those who believe and those who do not believe because God loves to bless everyone? Do we see that? When we see structures like buildings and cars and things like that, do we, see, do we see cars and houses or do we see uh, intelligence? Do we see design? Uh, you can look in a porn shop and see the glory of the Lord. Why? It's used in an especially destructive, horrible way. But animals can't do that, can they? Only humans who are made in the image of God can do that. So do you see order out there or do you see image? Do you see a reflection of something incredibly, incredibly wonderful out there? See what I mean about thinking theologically, viewing all this the way God views it? Some of you mentioned gray. In the summertime, you see green. Do you see creativity? Do you see colors? 
Do you see a God who is fantastic in making something? Making something for us, by the way? Like many of you, I've been around the world, and um, I can assure you this is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Of all the people here in the world, we should most appreciate what God has done. We should most appreciate it. It's amazing what he's done for us. So we live our lives every day in a very rationalistic way. Now, I understand we have to, otherwise we'd be running stop signs, hitting cars, things like that. So we have to live life that way. But where does faith come in where we stop and explore on a regular basis? What does this mean to be a Christian, to live in this world? Do we really, do you really believe in this one true living God? Do you really believe that? Are you willing to die for it? Are you willing to be embarrassed over it? It's a question we should ask. In this series, we're going to walk down over the next several weeks a series of topics that where we live our lives, and we're going to be asking the question, what does faith look like in each of these areas, and how has rationalistic thinking, and I'll come back to that and tell you what I mean by that, how has that influenced the way we look at that? Next week, we're going to look at faith and work. When you go to work, when you do your thing, what does faith look like in that context? How do you live it out? Are you just doing transactions, actions that you task, or is there faith involved, and how does that work out? Week after that, we're going to look at education. Ooh, let's jump into education. Education has been amazingly impacted by this whole discussion. And what does it look like to live out faith and where does faith integrate into the whole area of the way we learn and are educated? Next, we're going to talk about faith and ministry. Now, we, di we divided out work from ministry on purpose because that's kind of the world we live in. The truth is, all work is ministry. If I could change one thing about your thinking, that would be it right there, that all work is ministry. But I realize that's not the way we naturally gravitate. So we're going we're gonna to separate this little area out and talk about what does it look like when we are exercising our gifts and we are in ministry and in relationship with the people around us. And there we're going to talk about faith and culture. That's a big one. Culture is absolutely convinced that there's no reason, no need for faith, no room for faith, belief, especially religious belief, none. So what does that look like to live in a world and of all the places in the United States, this is a big one here for us because according to the last uh, status, only 17% of the people in our county go to any kind of church. So most of our people don't believe. So what does that look like? From there, we're going to go to faith and family. What does it look like within the context of nuclear as well as extended family? What does faith look like? And then finally, we're going to close, Mark and I are, with a question and answer time. So all throughout this series, if you think of questions, write them down and bring them with you that last week, and we're going to have an open dialogue. We're going to discuss, and we want to hear your questions after we've talked about it. What do you think about this? What are the challenges that you face? Where are the areas where you're not sure? And let's, and let's move in that. But first, first, let's define these two ideas, rationalism and what is technically known as fideism. That's what we hold to. Rationalism is a belief system that holds that truth, truth, capture that word, it's a belief system back up. Rationalism is a belief catch it? Huh. Never mind. In fact, 
he's thankful for the grand design. Somebody in the first service asked me afterwards, how did it get designed? Good question. So rationalism is a belief system that holds that truth should be determined by reason and factual analysis rather than faith, rather than dogma, rather than tradition or religious teaching. In contrast to that, and that's the way the argument is usually set up, let's talk about fideism. <clears throat> now, I don't hold to this viewpoint, but I'm quoting some definitions here. It is often argued that fideism generally refers to a belief system that is held with lack of, in spite of, or against reason and ev evidence. In fact, Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, defines it, fideism as reliance on faith rather than reason in the pursuit of truth. But is that an accurate portrayal of what we really believe? It's not an accurate portrayal of me. I've devoted my life to figuring this out right here. It doesn't describe me at all. So what is faith? Let's first of all establish that, that kind of that definition. What is faith? The concept of faith or believing has been around as long as humans have been around. It's a, a wrestling that we have had from the beginning of time. If you trace this idea of faith all the way back into the Hellenistic Greek era, you may remember in your high school or college, Homer, the Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, hopefully I'm not bringing up too many nightmares or memories, bad memories here. When you go all the way back into the classical Greek era, even by then, the concept of faith or to believe in something had the core idea of to trust in someone or something that is trustworthy. That was the core meaning. They weren't interested in whether it was measurable or provable. Was it a trustworthy idea? Or was the person trustworthy? If we're going to ask you to have faith in a person, are they trustworthy? Or an idea, was it trustworthy? Even within our own Judeo-Christian tradition, our own heritage, we could go back even much further than that. We go back to Genesis 15, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, the story of Abraham. That goes back a long ways, thousands of years. It predates the, the Greek period. And what happened with Abraham? Well, Abraham was not a believer in God. In fact, Joshua tells us that uh, our forefathers, including him, were, uh, they were idol worshipers. He's simply Chaldean. He uh, worshiped the stars, I believe. And so uh, he's out under the stars one night. He's trying to read the stars, worshiping the stars, and one of the stars speaks. Abram. That would unnerve anybody, wouldn't it? Abram. He never asked the question, is this provable? Is this verifiable? He just heard someone else. He heard a voice. And I would suggest when you go back and look at your own journey to faith, you've actually heard that same voice. You just didn't recognize it for the longest time. No one presented to you a fact out of the Bible that could be proven to be true and you said, oh, now I believe. That's not the way it works. No, you heard that voice tapping on the shoulder, whispering in the ear. And then one day through the awakening process, the regeneration process, that voice made sense to you and you understood. No different than Abraham. 
none whatsoever. So what did the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Simple words. We're going back thousands of years now. Abraham believed God. God didn't say, hey, Abraham, let's, uh, let's create an apologetic, a defense of the scripture. So I want you to write it down. Chapter one is going to be, who am I? So let me tell you who I am. Chapter two is, well, let me tell you about the great things that I've done. That's the way we think about it as rational people. He just said, Abram, go. And what did Abram do? What did he do? He went. <clears throat> and one of the things you'll see from Scripture from end to end is that when you a person believes, they obey. They're inseparable in Scripture. So the very first thing we learn about this whole idea of faith is that it will cause you to change your life. You cannot believe and stay and remain the same person. It is impossible. Or as James says, faith without works is dead. That is not true faith. If you believe you are a different person on a different set of railroad tracks, moving in a different direction, and you can't stop it, that's faith. So we see it. In Romans 4, Paul refers back to Abraham and confirms this understanding of what genuine faith is. Abraham becomes the example for all of us because he represents our lives. God began to speak to you, and somewhere that voice, it tuned into your frequency, whatever image you want to use, it became clear to you that this was God. You can't measure that, can you? It's not measurable. Romans 8, his spirit attests to our spirit that we are children of God. How in the world do you measure that? Faith is different than reason. This understanding of faith, this idea of the core uh, trustworthiness of something that you believe in, was prevalent in world history until about the 17th, 18th centuries, when philosophers and scientists began to argue that everything worth believing could be proved. For example, a 19th century mathematician, W.K. Clifford, great mathematician, he said, I'm going to quote him, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. This led to a shift away from the core idea of trustworthiness to focusing instead on what is provable. What is provable. This, I cannot overstate this, this has deeply impacted our culture through and through from beginning to end. It's very prevalent in everything that we see and do, which is why Mark and I want to take time on each of these topics with you and try to unravel some of this where rationalism has overtaken fideism, faith. Faith and belief now in our culture has come to mean something like this, maybe a weak form of knowledge. Okay. Think something is true? When I say to you, I know the capital of the United States of America is Washington, D.C., I mean by this statement that it can be verified, don't I? And you can verify it. <clears throat> but when I say something like, I believe in God, this usually is understood to mean, I think there's a God, but I can't prove it. 
And so we've, we've, we've created this divide, and I would argue a false divide, between what's provable and what's not. If it's provable, it must be truth. If it's not provable, it's fake. We can't prove it. I think that's a false divide. That's certainly not the way God operates. You see, God is pretty straightforward in his approach. He said, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to be who I am. And uh, you choose to believe it or not. It's your choice. Dr. Hawking chose not to. I chose to believe it. I chose to believe it. Is it any less true because I believe it? No. Can you measure love in a relationship? Can you measure that? But is it any less true that love exists? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You see the problem that we have? This use of faith and unbelief is very misleading because it does not accurately reflect what God says about it. What God says and what is our true theology. Now in the period of modern philosophy as opposed to postmodernism, so the period of modernity, we call it, during this period, it became increasingly popular to want to prove the claims of Christianity. Many of you that are older, you would understand that. that was, those were our Christian roots early on, right? A lot of energy was put into proving the claims of Christianity because that's where the attacks came from outside the world. Guess what we found out? It didn't work. God can neither be proved or disproved. It didn't work. No one came to know the Lord because we proved Christianity. Not at all. Some of you getting a little nervous here? When we move into the period of post-modernity, post-modern philosophy, think of this as a pendulum. We're way over here, very rational thinking, and we're going to prove the claims of Christianity. And we began to put that under the the uh, course called apologetics, the defense of the scriptures, now the pendulum is beginning to swing all the way over to the other end. You speak to our younger people, they don't even think that way. Something very different is happening. Truth is becoming subject subjective. <clears throat> what do we have in here? 150, 160 people? Truth happens to be whatever you think it is. It's relative. So we could have 160 different versions of truth right in here. So now we've created the opposite problem. You can't prove who God is. Since we now realize that, let's swing the pendulum all the way over here and say, well, the truth is whatever I've experienced. I was talking to Rob Schmidt before the first service, and he said, isn't that the same, that we're still looking for evidence? Exactly. We just are looking for it in our own unique way. Is it any less true that God exists because I can't prove it? Is it any less true that I love my wife because I can't measure it? course not the result in both scenarios is not a deepened faith it's really not it's not a greater attraction to the lord the result is confusion a confused society the result is a bunch of 20s and 30s going around asking significant questions and we're not sure how to answer them because we have based a lot of our faith on rationalism rather than true faith. So what is our theology? What do we believe? Well, let me tell you what I think, all right? And you can choose to believe it or not. First of all, we are not trying to prove God's existence. That's never been part of who I am. 
I'm not trying to prove God's existence. I can't. He is neither provable nor disprovable. So when someone says to you, God doesn't exist, you say, I'm a Christian. Really, I don't believe any of that. That's myth. Oh, really? Prove it. They can't. I mean, it's like turning the tables. <laughs> don't be ashamed to tell people that you're a Christian. It's wonderful. One of the greatest things in the whole world is when I tell people I'm a pastor in this county. I have grown to love it. I tell people I'm a pastor, and here's what I get. I get the eye roll. <laughs> I love that. You know what I do with that when it happens? I say, I just saw you roll your eyes. What's that all about? <laughs> or I said to people, I can tell from your response that uh, somewhere in your life, uh, you didn't have a good experience with Christianity. I'd love to hear the story. You know? Or uh, I could tell from your response, you don't believe, do you? Well, no, of course not. Why not? Well, because it's all myth. Oh, really? How do you know that? Have you actually, have you actually explored the claims, of, the claims of Christianity and come to a reasoned, educated conclusion that Christianity is mythological? Well, no. I've never heard, had a person say yes. No. And you call yourself an educated American? You should be ashamed, ashamed of yourself. I've said that to many people. And you know what? Man, it turns the tables and they go, well, when you put it that way, I am. So in other words, you formed your opinion based on stereotypes. You have no idea what Christianity is all about, do you? And they say, no, I don't. One guy said to me, Christianity is all about rules. And I said, oh, you mean the rule in Deuteronomy 22 where we're supposed to... Uh, Marry the women that we rape. Yes, I said that in church. We're supposed to marry the women that we rape. That's not in the Bible. Actually, it is. Or 1 Samuel 15, where we're supposed to kill all the men, women, and children, and animals. Apparently, we believe in genocide. That's not in the Bible. Yeah, it is. And I start going down this list. And they're like, what is that doing in the Christian Bible? You have no idea what Christianity is all about, do you? So I love it when I get the eye roll. I just love it. It's growing confusion. We are not trying to prove that God exists. We can't. So I'm going to follow the line of thinking of Pope John Paul II because he did a fabulous job of wrestling through this whole maze. First of all, here's what we know. We are created to know God and therefore truth, and we're always searching for it, aren't we? Genesis 1 and 2, wasn't that Satan's big carrot? You're not going to die what was the one tree they weren't allowed to eat from? The knowledge of good and evil. You're not going to die. The moment you eat of that tree, you're going to be like God and know everything. Why wouldn't we want to do that? Right? By the way, every one of you would have eaten from it. Don't blame it, Avenue. Eve. Look in the mirror. We are searching for truth. We want to know truth. God didn't try to protect us from truth, nor did he try to protect us from knowledge. He tried to protect us from the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because in order to really fully grasp the knowledge of good and evil, you have to be God. Now think about it, parents, when you have two children come to you. He did this. No, she did this, right? You weren't there, were you? So you don't really know what the motives were, the circumstances. You don't really know what happened. Solomon had the best answer. Give me the knife, cut the baby in half. All right? That's easy. We're not allowed to do that today. 
But you're not there, are you? To really discern the knowledge of good and evil requires omniscience. We need to know people's motives and circumstances. So when we catch one of you in trouble, we're trying to learn what it means to be gracious and say, we really don't understand all of the circumstances that led you to make the decision that you did. So how can we help you get to a better place in your decision making? The scriptures from beginning to end are trying to protect us from this problem. Knowledge of good and evil. God has graciously chosen to make unknowable things known through revelation. That was his choice. 1 Corinthians 2. He's given us his mind. Things that the eye has not seen. Things that the ear has not uh, uh, heard. And things that the mind has never thought of. 1 Corinthians 2. That God has revealed to us. We would have never even thought about it. It would have never come up to us in our minds in billions of years if God had not spoken. And God has graciously chosen to do that by giving us His Spirit so that we might know the deep things of God. <clears throat> so, following Pope John Paul, number one, we're created to know God and the truth. We're always searching for it. Number two, God has decided to reveal things to us. What the Pope called, uh, look at creation. There's, there's uh, precious gems everywhere. It's like a treasure hunt of, of learning about God. It's a lot like a marriage. I can't measure love. But I can tell you I love. I love my wife. And every day is like a treasure hunt. Man, I can't figure her out to save the world. You know, she's about as unknowable as... Never mind. It's another question. Another day. That'll be in our marriage series, which you're going to do in the summer. <laughs> but the third thing is that knowledge is not enough. Because the, la the story, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man out of Luke demonstrates, Luke 16, that it's not enough. Remember the story? The rich man is being tormented because he abused Lazarus before they died. Lazarus is the poor man. He's laying with Abraham, resting against him. And he's asked Abraham, would you send him over just to touch dip his finger in the water because I'm being tormented. And he said, no, not going to do that. It's a chasm between us. We can't cross it. So then he said, would you send the, rich, the poor man, would you send Lazarus to my brothers? Because if they see somebody come back from the dead, they will believe. If they have enough evidence, they will believe. And what did he say? It won't make a difference. It won't make a difference. They have Moses and the prophets. They have all the evidence they need. If I sent them back, nothing would change. Or it's what he called, what Jesus called, this evil generation seeks for a sign, but I'm not going to give it. You already have all the signs you need. Everything you need is there to make your decision. More evidence is not going to make a difference. But yet faith is not blind trust. That's why it's like this treasure hunt. By the way, more knowledge has never converted anybody. You never sit down and say, let me prove this fact to you out of the Bible. Oh, now I believe. No, it really is about faith. It really is. John Polkinghorne, he's a British physicist and a peer of uh, Stephen Hawking's. Um, they're both professors. He's argued that faith is to be understood as motivated belief. It's based on evidence the mirror, the, the creation mirrors God's image to us and we are able to learn and see. But it's not the proofs that lead us to Christ. 
So we're not looking for more evidence. We're really not trying to prove God. We have all the evidence that we need. Michael Polanyi, he's a Hungarian physicist. He also was a peer of Stephen Hawking. He's now dead. He's a Christian. He argued that the deepest truths in life uh, can only be discovered through experience and living, not through propositional teaching. He's a physicist. He's a theoretical mathematician. He used the example of riding a bike. He wrote a book on the physics of riding a bike, and when he's finished, he said, you don't know more about riding a bike now than you did when you started. The only way to learn to ride a bike is to get on the bike and skin your knees. The deepest truths can only be experienced. They cannot be taught. How can you teach someone about what a healthy marriage is, what a good marriage is, a good relationship? They have to experience it. So the Bible doesn't tell us what to believe. It validates our experiences as we live life and make sense out of them. Does that make sense? That's what the Bible does. The deepest truths we learn by living life, and then the Bible helps us to make sense of it. It's what Jim Dobson said, meant when he said, I think, our values are not taught to our children, they're caught by our children. The same idea. If you were to spend every day of your life telling your child integrity is important, every day, but you don't live a life of integrity, what's going to win out? Teaching or practice? These things can't be taught. They have to be experienced. So God didn't set out with a whole series of proofs. He didn't write this Bible and say, here's all the proofs that I exist. No, we call that modern apologetics, and it's fun to do it, but that's, that's not the way God did it. God said, I'm going to live life. I'm going to be who I am, and you can decide or not. I'm going to leave it up to you. Is there anything more honoring than that? Dr. Hawking has chosen thus far not to believe. I don't think his chap- last chapter is written yet. I have chosen to believe. It requires faith. Do you really believe that there is one true living God? Our faith is what helps us to understand the world around us. So what does rationalism do for us as Christians? It helps us make sense of what we already believe to be true. It doesn't lead us to faith. We already believe. Remember that with your friends. All the proofs in the world will not convince them. It just won't. There's not enough evidence in the world to prove because God is unprovable. It really is based on faith. George Barna has reported that about 9% of the Christians hold to a theistic worldview. Are you in that 9%? Or are you part of the 91%? Is your belief so strong, your faith so strong that you're not ashamed to be called a Christian? You're willing to get the eye roll? Remember, it's a great thing when you get it. Don't be intimidated by it. Take advantage of it. Ah, I can see from your response that you're not so keen on Christianity. How'd you get that opinion? You'll be astounded at what you'll hear. And people don't mind you asking. I've never had anybody yell at me for that question. You know, or I was raised a Christian and my dad, blah, blah, blah. Or I know these Christians next door and blah, blah, blah. Or you name it, it all comes out. And you begin to hear the truth about how Christians, I mean, non-Christians frame their perspective. We live by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It doesn't say without evidence. Without faith. 
So now, what does faith look like moving forward? What does it look like in the world in which we live, the culture in which we, we live from day to day, the, the jobs that we do, the, ed, the way we educate our children? And by the way, it doesn't matter if you're homeschooled or public school. I don't care which one. We still have the same challenges. You know, that we're going to find the homeschoolers rely on a very high degree of rationalism. What does faith look like in that context? What does the Bible say about it? So we're going to explore these, and then our final week, we're going to invite you to engage us in a question and answer time. So write your questions down as the weeks go by. Let's pray. Father, thank you for <coughs> sending your son, Jesus. Father, thank you for creating us and then giving us the incredible ability to choose or not choose. Lord, thanks for revealing enough of you to us that we can see and come to the knowledge of truth. Thank you for attesting to our spirit that we are your children. I have no idea how you do that. I'm just grateful that you do because I have felt it. I've experienced it. Can I measure it? No. Can I prove it? No. Can I write a, a dissertation on it and demonstrate that it happened? No, I can't. But did it happen? Yes, it did. And I'm grateful for that. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for communicating with us as you did with Abraham, helping us slowly learn to hear your voice. I do pray for Dr. Hawkins, Lord, that you would, before his time is up, that you would let him hear that voice clearly. He already has come to the conclusion there's a grand design, and I, like him, am very grateful, deeply grateful for what you have done. Help us, Lord, in our faith, or as the Father said in the Gospels, I believe, Lord, help us in our unbelief. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.